may be seated. If you have your Bibles, we're in Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. As you're turning, I'm just curious, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? Some of you are afraid to sleep. This is especially true of our teenagers, but true of many of you others as well. You have FOMO, fear of missing out. If I go to sleep, I might miss something. I have four children, all who are terrified that as soon as they go to sleep, there is going to be fun that takes place and they're going to miss it. In his book, The Radical Pursuit of Rest, John Kessler says, Like sleep, rest can be unnerving. For those who value activism, rest seems unproductive. Jesus didn't have this concern. He had no fear of rest. He was not worried about what his disciples would think of him sleeping, nor was he concerned about what the wind and the sea would do to him. Jesus knew that rest was a requirement and a good gift from God. Now, This isn't the focus of this sermon today, but you need to take this home with you. Rest is what you were created to do. Sleep is a requirement. Why? Not because I say so, but because God created you that way. You need not fear guilt, feel guilty for needing your eight hours of sleep a night. Go get it. Now, if you need 12 hours of sleep, you might should feel guilty about that. But still, why? Because God created you that way. Jesus knew that. And so Jesus rested. Are you afraid to rest? What else are you afraid of? The dark? Spiders? Snakes? Snakes are actually okay. Everything else, I don't know. Stay with me in honor of God's Word. We're going to begin reading in Mark chapter 4, verse 35. And we're going to read all the way to the end of Mark chapter 4. Now, let's give you some background because it starts off with on that day. It's important for us to understand which day. It was on the same day that all the other stuff in chapter 4 had taken place. So Jesus has given all these parables. Jesus has been preaching all day long. He's wore out as they say in the upstate of South Carolina. He was tired. He was exhausted. And that's where we pick up. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind and the sea, or rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Lord God, we come to you acknowledging that you are not only the God who commands obedience from the winds and the sea, you are the God who created the winds and the sea. Father, you're the God who speaks and worlds come into being. We come to you today acknowledging that you are worthy of all of our fear. And yet, Lord God, we come to you praying with full realization that Jesus came to die on the cross. That we may need not need fear. Father, may we trust you completely 
Change us through this word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. There's much we can learn in this narrative. One of the things we need not miss is that the account shows us not only the power of Jesus to overcome the wind and the waves, but his humanity as well. In this passage, we see that Jesus is fully God and he is fully man. Now, a lot, a lot of commentators like to talk about how Jesus had so much trust in the Lord. And that's absolutely true. But some miss the fact that Jesus was more slam out. He was exhausted. This doesn't just show us Jesus' confidence in his heavenly Father. This shows us Jesus' humanity. This is a fully God, fully human man. And he was tired from a day's hard work of ministry, preaching, teaching, almost assuredly casting out demons and healing because it's just what he did everywhere he went. Jesus is in the business of ministering to people. So here we see the fully human, fully God, God-man, the kind of God in the boat that speaks and waves cease, but also the kind of man who is tired. We also learn here that Jesus does have full comfort and trust in the arms of his heavenly Father. Jesus knew he needed sleep, so he laid down and slept. And what did Jesus worry about when he laid down and slept? Nothing. Nothing. Why? Because he had full confidence in his heavenly Father. How many of you lay your head down on your pillow at night and just leave everything on the bedside table? How many of you are able to do that? Jesus said we need not worry. Why? Because our heavenly Father knows even the number of hairs on our heads. He doesn't allow a sparrow to fall to the ground unless he knows about it. And what in the world are we worried about? Jesus didn't worry about anything. He had disciples rowing the boat. He had just preached. No doubt there were some who had rejected the gospel. No doubt there were some who were wrestling with the gospel. And Jesus left it all in the hands of his heavenly Father and laid his head on the cushion. The cushion. Sort of a generous term that our English translations give to us. This was not a feather pillow. My favorite kind of pillow personally. Some of you like a latex or maybe a, 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 a poly field. I like feathers. I think they're wonderful. And I don't care if you make fun of me. More than likely, Jesus was not laying his head on a polyfilled pillow or a feather pillow or a latex pillow. He was laying his head on something that probably resembled a sandbag. All right? There, there, there's various different interpretations of exactly what was going on right here. But the Bible says that Jesus laid down in the stern of the boat. He laid in the back. Now, what we have is some evidence from the first century of what a boat looked like. We've actually, well, we, I say we, generally speaking, we as in the larger Christian community, has recovered a boat from the first century. They, they dug it up off the bottom of the Sea of Galilee in a, during a drought at one period of time in January. And the boat was about eight meters long, about two and a half meters wide or something. And so it's, you, get, you get kind of an idea. It's pretty good size, about four feet. We'll switch to standard since that's better for all of us. About four feet high. It had a, 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 a deck in the front and a deck in the back. And Jesus was asleep in the back. That's the stern. Now, whether Jesus was asleep on the deck or under the deck, we don't really know. But he was asleep. Now, if he was asleep under the deck, more than likely what he was laying on was a huge sandbag that was laid in the rear of the boat under the deck to, to provide some weight to stabilize the boat. So maybe Jesus is lying on this giant sandbag under the deck. 
If he was laying on the deck, then he was probably had his head against some sort of a, a, a cushion, probably more like a backrest or a headrest, maybe covered in leather against one of the edges of the boat where the captain of the boat might have sat and leaned back against it. We're not talking about a cushy, comfortable bed. Jesus was asleep in the floor of a boat. And nothing troubled his sleep. I never knew my grandfather. Um, He died before I was born. But one of his sayings that's made its way all the way down to me is that if you have a good, clean conscience, you'll have no trouble sleeping at night. Jesus had a perfectly clean conscience, but he didn't just have a perfectly clean conscience. He had absolute, complete, and total trust in his heavenly Father. And Jesus fell asleep. Now we know what happens. The the wind comes, the waves come. And in the midst of that terrible storm, Jesus is the only person in that boat who has confidence and comfort. Everybody else is scared to death. Y'all, how many times have you found yourself in the midst of the storms of life and you're just scared to death? You literally just don't know what tomorrow holds. Sometimes you wake up and you don't know what today holds. There's so many different things that can bring about those storms of life. Sometimes it can be the smallest thing. Sometimes it's the largest thing. Sometimes it doesn't affect anybody but you, but the storms of life can be real. When I do a funeral in here, I'm I'm the first person to leave a funeral. Through the years, Buster and I have done, we should have counted up at some point how many funerals we've done together. And it's just not uncommon for he and I, uh, through the years, to walk down this center aisle and go stand out on the front porch. And we wait for everybody else to follow behind us. And as I stand on that front porch and I leave a sanctuary filled with mourning people, I watch the cars drive by. And I'm aware that inside of this building a storm is raging, but out there nobody even has any idea. The world goes on. You see, there's some of you that are in here today and this storm is raging and the world is still going on around you. Some of you walked in here today terrified. And today the Lord has a word for you. More scary though than those of you who walked in here terrified, anticipating a word from the Lord, or those of you who walked in here comfortable today without any realization that your very eternal salvation is in turmoil. There are some of you that came here today with a false sense of confidence, and today what you need to hear is the voice of the Lord rebuking you and calling you to salvation. But let's consider this morning the power that we can find in Jesus. The first thing we see is there is power in the presence of Jesus. Now the disciples certainly dropped the ball by assuming they didn't need Jesus. But don't miss the fact that they were safe precisely because they were in the presence of Jesus. Jesus looks at them and he says, why, don't, why are you afraid? Here's what Jesus knew. Jesus knew that as long as he was right there, they had nothing in the world to be afraid of. Jared Wilson says something like this, There is more safety with Jesus in the middle of a hurricane than without Christ in the warm stillness of our bathtub. 
The nearness of God doesn't produce immediate comfort always, nor is the presence of Jesus a guarantee against storms, but you can be confident that when the storms of life come, if Jesus is with you, you are safe. There is power in the full knowledge that he will never leave you nor forsake you. But the presence of Christ in your life should also remind you to know your own limitations. If you're a follower of Jesus, you don't have to do life on your own. You only do it on your own if your pride pushes you there. Let me say that again. You only do life on your own if your pride pushes you there. Now I want us to just think about this picture of the disciples. The disciples are in the boat. The wind comes, the waves come, and they were afraid. Listen, when I fly on airplanes, I don't really enjoy flying. I get in this little tube, they throw me up in the air at like 500 miles an hour, and I'm supposed to be like, oh, this is good. No, it's, it's, it's really not. Okay, I, I mean, yeah, some of you are like, oh, it's so cool. Look, I get it. Like, theoretically, there's a coolness to the fact that, that, that God has given to us the ability to have that kind of technology. But the reality is there's somebody else that controls my life right there. And if that guy gets a cramp in his leg, I don't know where we end up. Just take that with you and enjoy that. But I get, I get on this airplane, and, and occasionally we go through turbulence. I was flying back from Dallas uh, a couple weeks ago, and the pilot comes over, we're going to be encountering some turbulence over Memphis. I wondered, I mean, we were in Memphis, I mean, there's just all kind of exciting things there. I wondered what was happening on the ground that caused turbulence in the air. It's not the way it works, actually, but what if it did? But you know what I noticed? The pilot says, buckle your seatbelts. You know what the stewardesses did? Nothing. They were just chilling. It got a little bumpy. My stomach kind of left me somewhere over Memphis. I picked it back up somewhere around about the North Carolina line. But still, Nothing. You know when I get concerned on an airplane? When I see the stewardesses get concerned. When those flight attendants get scared, then I get scared. Why? Because y'all, they've been through this. They know what a little bit of turbulence feels like. They know what buckle up feels like. When they start sitting in that little jump seat and they pull those belts over and they start pulling them up tight, Listen, I reach over and I pull that lap belt on over. I put my book up. I close everything up. I just get into a little ball and I wonder, Lord God, is that oxygen mask really going to fall out like they tell me it will? God, is there really truth in that thing they tell me that this seat will float? I don't want to find out, but God, if it's supposed to, I want to make sure it does. Thirdly, Lord, can I actually, actually really live through a water landing anyway so does it matter? God, save me. Listen, these were seasoned, seasoned men at sea. And the Bible says they were terrified. Listen, when they got afraid, it was time to be afraid. You got it? But watch what they did. No big deal, we'll handle this. Jesus is in the boat. Jesus is there and the disciples got us. No big deal, we got this. No big deal. Y'all, why? Well, some of you might be more... Uh, optimistic, man, well, they just didn't want to bother Jesus. He's the God of the universe. How often in our lives do we find ourselves in the middle of a storm and we're like three weeks into it before it occurs to us, Lord God, could you help me with this? Before it occurs to us, He is the God who controls the waves and the winds. 
God, can you do something here? So often we pull ourselves, or excuse me, we take it all upon ourselves. There's power in the presence of Jesus. The only way I know to explain this, I know some people who like to wait. So we get snow here like once every four years. And we're experts with it because we get it once every four years. And there's some people, whether it's snow or, or it's, it's mud, they like to wait until the very last minute before they shift their truck into four-wheel drive. You know those people? Some of you are sitting there going, yeah, that's me. Well, listen, that's because you've never been upside down in a vehicle. Once you've been upside down, you know what you do? You go to four-wheel drive in the rain. Boop, you don't even care. You don't care who's making fun of you. Right? But some of you, you like to wait. You want to see how close to stuck you can get before you actually shift to four-wheel drive. Do you know why? Because you are prideful. That's exactly what it is. You're prideful. You want to say, look how good of a driver I am. I don't really need this. If that's the way you feel, then buy a two-wheel drive and leave the four-wheel drive on the lot. But so many of us behave with Jesus this way. Let me see how close to stuck I can get, and then I'll reach out to Jesus. Why? Because we're prideful. Jesus wants us not to wait until we're stuck to call out. We're supposed to be relying on him every minute of every day. He came to slay our pride. Do you understand that? It's okay that you can't do this life on your own. You're not supposed to. If you have Jesus, he says, cast your burdens onto me because I care for you. Which burdens? All of them. Oh, our pride will lead us into dangerous places. But the presence of the Lord Jesus is powerful and gives us hope and security. There's power in the presence of Jesus. Number two, there's power in the word of Jesus. There's power in the word of Jesus. I'm talking about big power. This is the same Jesus who spoke the world into being. When he speaks, things happen. Do you hear me? When he speaks, things happen. He's exhausted. He's asleep. That deep rim sleep. And the disciples, they, they, they scream at him. Now, we all know somewhere, even though the Bible doesn't tell us, we all suspect that this is Peter. Why do we suspect it's Peter? Because he puts his foot in his mouth, and Peter always puts his foot in his mouth. Now, I want you to see what the disciples said. Let's, let's, let's not get to them just yet. Moms and dads, whether you have children at home still or they're all grown, how many, I, I, have you heard this statement? You don't even love me. Right? Everybody's going Some of you are sitting there and you're going, my children will never say that to me. One day you'll have children and they will and you're going to come back and you're going to acknowledge that you had to be the mean parent. Just, just deal with it, okay? Why don't you love me? If you loved me, you would blah, 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 blah. This is Peter. Now, they handled it all on their own. Remember, we don't need you, Jesus. We got this. And then when it gets so bad, they're afraid that they're going to die. They're stuck. There's no way out. And this is what the disciples say. They woke him up. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? What a slap in the face. Jesus, do you even care about us? There's power in the word of Jesus. Now, side note right here. Jesus doesn't even deal with the disciples yet. Jesus is very good at identifying the enemy. How easy would it have been for Jesus to dress down the disciples? 
There's power in the word of Jesus. Power to overcome, to create, and to destroy. He could have destroyed the disciples for their lack of faith and their intrusion into his sleep. Do you understand that? But Jesus is very good at identifying the problem. Haven't we all been in this place before, though? Instead of addressing the actual problem, we lash out at the closest problem. Those closest to us become punching bags for issues that are not at all their fault. But Jesus isn't like that. Jesus keeps the main thing the main thing. This is one of the struggles that we have when we deal with marriage counseling a lot of times. I bring people in. There's two people in my office. Plus me, that makes three. And I look at them and I say, who is the enemy right here? Who is the enemy? And the reality is that the enemy of marriages is not husband or wife. The enemy of marriage is Satan who desires to destroy marriages. But so often, instead of focusing our efforts and our attention on overcoming the real enemy, we're too busy trying to win the fight that that started this morning. Don't you care about us? Jesus wakes up. He looks at Peter. Peter, I'm going to deal with you in a minute. But Jesus, now Peter, again, I've told y'all before, I think Peter's like me. So let me just get you to where Craig is in this. Once I start the fight, I want to finish the fight now. We don't want to put this off till later. Some of you are like this. Some of you are looking at me with that guilty look right now. Because you have that spouse who says, let's just, let's just come back to this in a little while. And you're the person that's going, no, 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 no. We're going to get all this out right now. See, that, that's, that's, that's me. I've got to be careful. I've got to fight against that in my own life. I don't want to deal with it later. I want to deal with it now. Let's get it all out in the open. Okay? Of course, the other, the other extreme is we just brush it off under the rug and pretend like it didn't exist. Both of those are wrong, but we're, that's not what this sermon's about, so we'll move on. So, but I can imagine Peter, Jesus says, uh, uh, just a minute, Peter, no! Don't you care? <laughs> Jesus, Peter, just wait a minute. D- don't, don't, no, no, we're dying here and you're sleeping. Just, 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 just. What do you mean, just a minute? What do you mean? Jesus, I asked you a question. Jesus just ignores at this point. I ain't even got time for this. What does Jesus do? He looks at the wind and he looks at the waves and individually he rebukes both of them. Peace! Be still! Don't neuter Jesus right here. These are strong, powerful words. This isn't sweet coddling words. Jesus says, stop now! And the disciples are going, okay. There's power in the words of Jesus. Power to stop the storms that rage in your life. Jesus doesn't deal with the most immediate problem. He deals with the real problem. He deals with the underlying issue. He speaks to the wind and the waves, and he speaks using the same words that he used to cast out a demon in chapter 1. These are not sweet words. These are harsh, fighting words spoken by the master of the sea. There is a name I call in times of trouble. There is a song that comforts in the night. There is a voice that calms the storm that rages. He is Jesus who walks on the waters, who speaks to the sea, who stands in the fire beside me. He roars like a lion. He bled as the lamb. He carries my healing in his 
hand. When the wind and the waves of life seem about to overwhelm you, remember He is the God who not only created the storm, He is the God who calmed the storm. Where did this storm come from? We don't know. The Bible doesn't teach us, but it does appear to be supernatural. These guys are terrified, and it comes up from out of nowhere. Some argue that this storm comes about as a result of a demonic force that's seeking to blow Jesus off course. Perhaps, perhaps Jesus in that moment is rebuking, but the Bible doesn't teach us that. The Bible does teach us that in Jonah chapter 1, it was the Lord himself who sent the storm to get Jonah's attention. Perhaps God himself sent this so the disciples would know that the person in their boat was no mere man. He was the God of the universe. The Bible teaches us repeatedly in the Psalms and in other places that only God can calm the storms. And he can calm the storms in your life. Isaiah 43 is a passage that God used as I wrestled through my call to ministry, and in Isaiah chapter 43, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. There's power in the Word of God. And when He speaks, things happen. There's not only power, though, in the presence of the God and the Word of God. There's power in the reproof. Of Jesus. There's power in the reproof of God. Jesus speaks into our fear, but he doesn't always speak in the way that we might expect. Now, we have this very softened understanding of what it would look like for Jesus to make me feel better. And when I feel bad, I kind of want Jesus to cover me up with a warm blanket and tuck me in on the couch and say, It's going to all be better, Craig. Look, if that makes me seem girly, just deal with it. I don't really care. Y'all all feel the same way. You just never came out and said it out loud, okay? But Jesus doesn't always work that way. As a matter of fact, I would say Jesus often doesn't work that way. Often we hear peace, be still. We see the wind die down and the waters become smooth as glass. And we go, there's my God who fights for me. But he's not finished. Because he said, Peter, hold on. Or whoever disciple it was. And he shuts up the wind and the waves. And they go, oh yeah, get them Jesus, you tell them. But then the gaze of Jesus turns from the wind and the waves. And the gaze of Jesus meets his disciples. And they go, oh no. Jesus says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Often, Jesus' greatest gifts to us are not words of affirmation, but words of reproof and correction. I'm going to say that again. Often, Jesus' greatest gifts to us are not words of affirmation, but words of reproof and correction. The love of Jesus is not always evident through our circumstances, and the love of Jesus is not always unicorns and rainbows. Modern psychology tells us today the best way to overcome our fears is to face our fears. 
Interestingly, more than 2,000 years ago, Jesus didn't tell the disciples to merely face their fears, but to trust the one who could overcome their fears. Jesus wouldn't have fit in well in most middle and high schools today. He certainly wouldn't have fit the mold for much that passes as modern parenting or even, super, or even like professional supervision. Because Jesus doesn't say to the disciples, I understand your fears and I want you to know that I love you anyway. I understand it and I want you to know that you are loved and treasured and cherished. Jesus is less concerned with their self-esteem than he is with their salvation. Do you understand that? Jesus is not creating some false version of self-encouragement and self-empowerment. He needs them to come face to face with the reality that they are sinners in need of a Savior. Jesus' rebuke was more gentle than it was to, to or excuse me, his rebuke towards his followers was certainly much more gentle than it was to the wind and the waves. Don't miss that. Again, Jesus clearly identifies the enemy, and he clearly delineates between the enemy and the friend. The enemy hears, hush! The friend says, what in the world are you doing? About 20 years, no, oh, goodness. Yeah, I guess it was nearly 20 years ago. I guess I'm getting old. Um, I um, was playing a church league softball game. Um, and uh, yes, I, I used to do those things and be cool, and now I'm just old. Um, but uh, playing a church league softball game, and uh, long story, you know how church league softball games can become. Uh, tempers can flare and things of that nature. The game was over. I was trying to make peace with a situation that had taken place. And I was out on the field by myself uh, with a few people from the other team. And um, my brother was there with me, um, who is a little more hot-headed than me and has always sort of had this weird thought, even though he was younger, that he needed to make sure that you know the, the preacher brother was okay. And um, he looks up, and, and it appeared that, that tempers were beginning to flare. And he starts out onto the field. Now, tempers were getting a little bit tense at that moment. Um, but uh, the last thing that we needed was for them to get worse, as you might imagine. Did I mention it was a church league softball game, and I was the pastor, one of the pastors in one of the churches, and the last thing I needed was for something to get a little bit crazy right there in the middle, in the front of God and everybody. And as he approached, I'm having this conversation with these folks who were angry about something ridiculous. And I see my brother out of the corner of my eye. And he's coming. And I know why he's coming. And I know that he needs to stop right where he is. And as I see him getting a little closer, I turned from this conversation and I looked at him. I said, you shut your mouth right now. Don't say a word. Why? Because in that moment... He was the greatest enemy to be overcome. He didn't realize it. You understand? Jesus would look at Peter at one point and say, Get behind me, Satan. You are in the way. Folks, sometimes the greatest love that Jesus gives to us is to point his finger in our face and say, you, Where is your faith? Why are you afraid? But watch, his reproof is not his rejection. 
Jesus doesn't walk away from the disciples. He stays. He is patient and loving. He sees what they can be. And just as we saw last week, he continues to work on them. He is patient, wanting that none should perish. But even though he is patient, just know that Jesus is not satisfied to leave you in your fear. You don't get to go to Jesus and say, that's just who I am. I know I shouldn't be racist, but I was raised that way. Galatians 3.28 says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. You are all one in Christ. You don't get to go and say, I know I shouldn't be materialistic, but I was just born that way. Proverbs 11.28 says, whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like the green leaf. I know that I should speak kinder to my employees, but you don't understand my job. Colossians 4, 6 says, let your speech be always gracious and seasoned with salt. You don't get to say, Jesus, I know I shouldn't complain all the time, but you don't know how hard it is to be a teacher. You don't know how hard it is to be a coach. You don't know how hard it is to, to do this job or that job. You don't know how hard it is to feel unappreciated. Philippians 2.14 says, do everything without arguing or complaining. There is power in the reproof of Jesus because it forces us to reckon with the question, not only who then is this, but who then am I? As followers of Jesus, we are forced to question who is he? And in light of who he is, how then should I live? Imagine the cruelty of a God who would expect certain things from us and never show us our wrongs. And yet, even in our reproof, let us never forget the power of his word. You ready? Because there's power in the reproof, but the reproof of Jesus is not somehow devoid of the word of Jesus. J.C. Ryle says this, Let us mark this lesson also and lay it up in our minds. With the Lord Jesus Christ, nothing is impossible. No stormy passions are so strong that he cannot tame them. No temper is so rough and violent that he cannot change it. No conscience is so disquieted that he cannot speak peace to it and make it calm. No man ever need despair. If he will only bow down his pride and come as a humbled sinner to Christ, Christ can do miracles upon his heart. There's power in the reproof of Jesus. And then finally this morning, there is power in the cross of Jesus. When God does what only God can do, the only proper response is to give God the glory that only God deserves. Now Mark has been clear throughout the parable section that the apostles are given a special window into the teachings of Jesus. Right there in Mark chapter 4, verse 30, 34. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. The disciples are given this special window of understanding into Jesus. And yet, that still isn't enough. They still don't get it. Even in the midst of that, they still don't get it. Why? Because there is no way to understand Jesus fully without the cross and the empty grave. The cross is the full revelation of God given to mankind. And the empty grave is the proof that the cross was sufficient for the salvation of every man, woman, boy, and child who would call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need both. We need not only the cross, we need the cross and the resurrection. The disciples don't understand fully who Jesus is until the cross and the resurrection. The cross makes it possible, you ready, for us to draw near to Jesus. Listen, the nearness of God doesn't produce comfort immediately for the sinner. But fear elicits the proper question that makes faith possible. What does that mean? That means this. When you come face to face with the God of the universe, you are a sinner separated from God. You come face to face with the God of the universe. You're not immediately comforted. You're terrified. 
Because the presence of God makes very apparent the sin and the shortcomings of your own life. The nearness of God evokes an appropriate response that leads you to the opportunity to be saved. Who then is this? What kind of man is this? And Lord willing, how might I be saved? There's power in the cross of Jesus. Some of you are here today and you're experiencing discomfort and fear of the presence of God. For those of you that don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, the idea of being near to Him scares you to death. But right now, right now, today, ask who then is this? Who is this that I'm in the presence of? How shall I respond? How might I be saved? Folks, listen to me. There's power in His presence. There is power in His Word. There's power in His reproof. There is power in the cross. But not only is there power, there is hope. There is hope for you today. There's hope in His presence because He wants to be with you. There is hope for you today, even in His reproof. Because He wants to transform you and change you. He wants to awaken you. There is hope in the cross of Christ to save you. Will you hope in Him today? Will you lay down your fears and your worries and your burdens? Tell me this, will you lay down your pride? There's some of you in that, in that boat today who's just rowing and rowing and you're thinking, if I can just hold out, I'll get through this storm. And I'm asking you today, would you look to Jesus and say, Lord God, I don't know how bad it's going to get. But Lord God, regardless of whether or not I can do it on my own or not, I'm going to trust you to carry me through it. Would you be willing to do that? Would you be willing to not wait until the storm gets so bad that you're tempted to accuse Jesus of what he didn't do? Would you instead run to the Lord and say, Lord God, carry me. Lord God, save me. Lord God, heal me. Lord God, help me. Hope in Christ. There is hope in your storm. There is hope in your strife. There is even hope, you ready, in your sin. Will you come to Christ today? Will you come and be saved today? Will you come and be changed today? Believer, follower of Jesus, would you come today and lay your burdens here? Would you bow before the Lord and say, Lord God, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. Would you come and not worry about what somebody else might think? Would you come and be weak before Jesus? He will take you just as you are and make you into a vessel that is fit and useful for His kingdom. Will you allow Him? Will you let Him? There's hope in the presence of Jesus. There's hope in the word of Jesus. There's hope in the reproof of Jesus. And praise God Almighty, there is hope for eternity in the cross of Jesus Christ. Would you come today? 
Let's pray. Father God in heaven, you are powerful. You walk on the water. You speak to the sea, Lord God. You calm the storms around us and within us with the word of your voice. Lord God, Job complained and you said, where were you, Job? When I told the seas just how far they could come. Lord God, we weren't there at the day of creation. But praise God Almighty, we can be there at the day that you recreate us. Through the cross of Jesus, would you work today? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand and would you sing with us this morning?